Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. My name is Dennis, and I used to be one of the pastors here. The way that it, way that it goes here. It's always good to come home. Uh, let's open our Bibles together, our Bible app, John chapter 17. Uh, I think it's really important that you have the Word of God either on your phone or on a tablet or something, or on the Bible right in front of you. Page 1073 will bring you to our text of study, John chapter 17. Uh, let me ask you a question to uh, begin our time together. Is the name Johnny Erickson familiar to you? Yeah, to many, many people, we know Johnny. For those that it's not, she's a, a Christian author and ministry leader whose life was dramatically changed when she misjudged the depth of Chesapeake Bay and dove in for a swim and broke her neck. And she became an instrument quadriplegic at the age of seven, 17. Hard to believe that was 57 years ago. But despite her, her injury, Johnny developed into an accomplished painter and has become an international spokesperson for those living with disabilities. This past week, I, I watched an interview of Johnny and uh, she explained how she struggled with her debilitating injury and with life in a wheelchair for almost six decades. Uh, how has she coped? Well, as you might imagine, she has some great highs, and then she has some very, very deep lows. What has helped her the most are 10 words that were shared by her friend, Steve Estes, as she really struggled to understand God's role in her injury and God's plan for her life. He gave her a key principle that she says changed her life, and It'll be the primary principle that we're going to be talking about during our time together. Here's what he told her. He says, according to the Bible, God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Those are, are, are profound words, profound words of mystery and meaning especially for anyone who has suffered an accident or some kind of trauma and wondered about a loving and omnipotent God's role in the accident. It's today, it's, it's called the theological idea of theodicy. Why does a good and powerful God let these horrible things happen here? Well, the Bible explains it in a number of different ways. I certainly can't explain it completely, but we get some help from, from, from a number of passages. The first is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 32 and 33. Through the prophet Jeremiah, we're told that if God causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict, what's the word? Willingly. What's interesting in my study, it's a compound Hebrew word that literally means from the heart. It's not in God's heart 
to hurt. His heart is filled with compassion and abundant loving kindness towards those that are grieving, towards those that are suffering. His, His sovereignty demands that he's a part of it, but we're assured it gives him no pleasure in his heart to do so as his heart is not uh, not filled with hatred nor anger. Uh, the, The scriptures go on in Ezekiel chapter 33, states the same truth a little different way. As the, as I live declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So when when, uh, rebellious, sinful, wicked people die, God's not up in heaven. I'd rather that the wicked turn from their way and live, see? So uh, there's no laughter in heaven with cancer diagnosis. He doesn't take some sadistic pleasure in You name it, rape, molestation, abuse, fraud, racial discrimination. No pleasure in that. We would say in today's language, he doesn't get any kicks out of it. And I think it's why we're told that when Jesus stood by the tomb of of his good friend Lazarus in John chapter 11, we're told that he was filled with deep anger. I always wondered about that. Why, why was Jesus so angry at Lazarus' tomb? And I, I think there's a number of answers, but maybe at the heart of it is because he was just ticked off at death, at suffering, at sadness, at the grief that death brought with it. And I think the thing that made him the, the most mad was the thought That's not the way God created life to be. Was never God's plan. But it's the way that life is. Because humanity rebelled. And as a result, we suffer the consequences of sin. Every dimension of God's good creation was touched. It's the reason why we, we know we live in sin-stained bodies. These bodies break down. I was playing on the trampoline with my granddaughter the other day. She looked at me and she said, Grandpa, you look old. <laughs> and I said, I say the same thing every time I look in the mirror, you know? <laughs> It's just, it's just all breaking down. We live in a sin-stained world. And we live with sin-stained people. We hurt each other. This is the reason why we have famines and we have droughts. Then we get floods and we get mudslides. That's why we pick up the newspaper or go online or whatever blogs you look at. You see there's gun violence at homes, in schools, in the streets, football celebrations.
Well, when those kind of things happen, please be assured that just like Jesus was angry, God the Father is angry too. This is not the way that he planned for it to be. And he hates that suffering. And he hates that death. So, um, did God push Johnny off that boat and into the water, Chesapeake Bay? The answer, I think, is a resounding no. She chose to dive in that day and suffered an absolutely horrific injury. It happens. It happens all the time. Uh, the scriptures only tell us he allowed it to happen, though. Isaiah chapter 45, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord who does all these things. So why in the world would a benevolent, omnipotent God permit something that he hates? To accomplish what he loves. That's the reason. So if he has his hand on the source of the trouble, he also can have his hand in the outcome of the trouble. And if you pick up your Bible and you read through it, you'll see it over and over and over again of our inhumanity against each other, God's people against others. It doesn't please the Lord, but he uses it in a very, very meaningful way. I, I, probably the best story of it is an Old Testament patriarch by the name of Joseph. He was one of a dozen kids born to Jacob or Israel. His older brothers were jealous of him, his favor with dad. And as a result, they wanted to get rid of him. So they sold him into slavery. And then they took his, his, his jacket and smeared blood all over it and told dad, Joseph's been eaten by a wild animal. Just broke his dad's heart. Well, Joseph then, in slavery, heads to Egypt. He gets a few breaks, but then he gets falsely accused of sexual assault, and he gets tossed into prison for an extended period of time. And all of that loneliness and all of that isolation, all of the results of the sin of his brothers, God raised Joseph up to a place of authority in Egypt and had Joseph set aside food for a coming famine that his brothers came down to purchase. And it was there that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. Uh, his comment to them, I think, really sums it up. He said to him, as for you, you knuckleheads, you meant evil against me. That was on them. That was their choice. They were wicked and they were sinful and they were evil and they were jealous and they were hurtful and they made very bad choices. That's on them. 
you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I'll tell you again, slavery is not good. False accusations, imprisonment, isolation, they're not good. But God permits it to accomplish something good. The saving of his family. So God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Now, uh, with that stated, why in the world do we start with this when we're going to be talking about John chapter 17? <laughs> well, I think as we look at the text of Scripture, we're going to see that the ultimate proof of its truthfulness, ultimate proof of it, is the cross. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. John chapter 17. Here's the context. If you remember back last weekend, Pastor Ryan explained how Jesus was comforting his first followers. They were grief-stricken when he told them, hey, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm going back to heaven. Just broke their hearts. And even though it was a good thing, he said, listen, it's better that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to enter your life, going to be with you permanently, better than my presence. They were still heartbroken. The fact that he was leaving them here. Well, Jesus said to him, listen, I know it's going to cause you sorrow right now, but I promise you that sorrow will become your greatest joy in the future. See how he sums it all up? John chapter 16 and verse 33. This will set our context and then launch us into our study. Jesus warned them first. In the world, he says, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. Sorrow, pain, anguish, angst, whatever you want to call it, it's a part of every life lived. Beloved, listen, we all know this. You can do everything right and still up and end up in a bad place. It's just the world that we live in. We're going to have tribulation. But then he adds, but take heart. I have, what's the word? I have overcome the word. Uh, interesting, the original uh, word in, in the language is nikao, is the verb. The noun form is nike, from which we get the athletic brand Nike. Uh, the, the verbal idea means to conquer, to win a victory over, to overcome. So the reason you and I, followers of Jesus, can take heart or be courageous in the midst of trouble is because he's the world's overcomer. By, by his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he overcame sin and its penalty. He overcame death and the grave. He overcame the devil and all of his powers. He overcame the world and all of its persecution. And what I want to emphasize to you he also overcame all the sorrow of the world. See, all the sorrow. He is the world's overcomer. 
And what absolutely blows my mind, our minds, is if you take up your Bible and you, look, you read through it, the Bible says the moment that you believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you believed in the Lord Jesus, say amen. 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 The moment that you believed, everything that he earned is credited to your account. So when Jesus sees you and you and you and you and you and you, he doesn't look at you in your sin. He looks at you in Jesus' perfection. So his victory over sin is your victory over sin. His victory over death is your victory over death. Over Satan, over the powers of darkness, over the world, over tribulation. And his victory over sorrow is your victory over sorrow. You share in everything that, that he's earned. And it's the reason why Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't do it. He simply won the victory for us and it's given to us here. So I don't know what you're going to face this afternoon or any day this week. You, you could be on top of the pile or the pile could be on top of you because it, life happens sometimes. I would just tell you, whatever it is that happens, just be assured. He's got you and you've got him. And because of it, we kind of overconquer. We sort of overconquer. We just a little bit overconquer. What's it say? We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So I just tell you, uh, this afternoon and this week, just rest in it. He's done it all. He's earned it all for you. Rest in it. Rejoice in it. His provision is your provision. One day you're going to heaven. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Well, you, you know, when, we're, we're going to be out of here. And we celebrate it. Our sorrow one day will indeed be turned into joy. So. With that as my introduction. <laughs> Jesus has finished his teaching of the 11. They're done with their Passover meal. He's instituted the Lord's table, communion, the last supper. They leave that upper room area, walk across Mount Zion area, down past the temple, down towards the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested later that night. On the way, our Lord feels the need to pray. And he starts to pray out loud. The 11, they eavesdrop on Jesus' very intimate conversation with Abba with the heavenly father. John, under the inspiration of the spirit, he writes down the prayer and it's in chapter 17. It's typically called the Lord high priestly prayer. 
because of its elegance and its magnificence. It breaks down three very simple divisions. Verses one through five, he prays for himself. Good thing to do. Verses six through 19, he prays for the 11. They were gonna go through some special hardships. And then verses 20 through 25, guess who he prays for? Praise for us. All future believers who form his church, he prays for us. Our text this morning is verses one through five here. And uh, uh, in it, we're gonna see how this principle that God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves is revealed in Jesus' prayer and how it impacted his perspective of his own agony, his own suffering, his own hardship on the cross. And it's my prayer that for my own heart in life, but for yours as well, dear sister and brother in Christ, it's my prayer that as we go through this, whatever hardship you're in, because we all have them, that you'll find hope that though what you're experiencing, not good, but that God will use it for good. He permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. The proof is the cross. So, let's dig in. Three things we're gonna notice. First, the certainty of the existence of God's plan. Verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, not referring to an hour, a 60-minute uh, chronological time, but the timing of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. He saw that as an hour up to this point in time as you've gone through the Gospel of John. For three years, he's been telling the guys, my hour has not yet come. It was always future. Well, on Thursday night, they leave that upper room, they head towards Gethsemane, and he says to the father, it's time. It's time for me to die. The hour that you've established on your timetable, on your calendar, it's here. And it dawns on me that the, the whole point of it is that he understood that suffering was a part of God's plan for his life. wasn't a mistake, wasn't just some random thing that people were going to do to him. God had it all planned out. That's why Peter in his first sermon, he told all the, all the folks who were listening to him that Jesus was delivered over by the, what, the predetermined plan. Well, the Greek verb is horizo, by the horizon. There's a boundary out there, meaning there's a definite, distinct plan where all of this is going. And it was the predetermined plan that Jesus would end up on the cross. So, God the Father wasn't up in heaven going, how's this happening? 
It was an hour that had been planned. An hour when he would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. It was the hour when the suffering servant would be pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53.5. It was the hour when all of those shadows, if you will, of the animal sacrifice. You read through your Old Testament, there's a lot of blood in there. Why? It was all a shadow or a picture of a coming reality. Every year and every time they sacrificed one of those animals and his blood was shed, it pictured the coming day when the Son of God would have his blood shed once for all time so it never has to happen again. That hour was, was upon him. The hour when he would give righteousness to all who believe. The hour when your certificate of debt of everything you've ever done or ever will do against the Lord, when it's nailed to the cross and it's completely washed clean by his blood. That hour was here. And I tell you, it wasn't a surprise, but it was part of a plan. And I would say the same thing for your suffering. He didn't like it. Gives him no pleasure. Whatever it is that you bring with you to the worship center this morning. Because we all have them. But it's no mistake. Part of plan. You know, reading through your New Testament, you'll see this emphasized in John chapter 9. You've studied this already. In John chapter 9, there was a guy who was born blind, congenital defect. And the disciples said, you know, who messed up here that this guy is blind? Because they thought that either the mom or dad had sin in their lives that would cause this kind of a congenital defect. She said, oh, no, you got, you got all of that completely wrong. This wasn't because of sin but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He didn't like the limitations of blindness, but he permitted it to accomplish what he loves. So, have you come to that place where you've accepted pain and suffering as a part of God's plan? Because what suffering tends to do to me, and I don't know if you relate to this, but when I get into trouble and I get overwhelmed and the darkness just seems to envelop me, I kind of lose sight of all of that and I go, nope, there's no plan in this. I was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And we lose sight of it. And what we're seeing in Jesus' prayer is he didn't lose sight of it. He was absolutely certain that while God hated the cross, he was going to use it to accomplish what he loved. And I would say it'd be the same thing for yours, your pain, the angst, and the anguish that you go through. Father, the hour has come for your plan to be worked out, so here I am. Secondly, 
Jesus' prayer reveals his confidence in the goodness of that plan. Not only was it a plan, but it was a good plan. Verse 1, his initial request, glorify your son. Honor me, Father, for what I'm about to go through on the cross, please. And we typically do not connect pain and suffering with honor. Those two, two typically don't get put together. And that's the irony of this whole prayer. Jesus knew beyond a shadow of doubt that his greatest honoring would come through his greatest agony on the cross. That his greatest exalting would come from what most people would say would be his greatest shame. What the disciples thought was the worst outcome would become the greatest element of their glory, if you will. They're honoring him here. God permitted what he hates to accomplish what he loves. The profanity of Golgotha. He said, I'll accept it. Please, now, glorify me. Why? Verse 1, that the Son may glorify you. He always looked at his suffering from a greater perspective because he knew where it would lead to his own benefit as well as the glory of God the Father. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews said, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He looked out beyond the pain to the good accomplishment. He despised, he hated the shame of being crucified, naked, spit on, abused, rejected. But after it was all over, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He endured by looking beyond the present suffering to the joy of sitting there, glorifying both of them. And I think that's an, uh, a way that you and I can get through our troublesome times. By, by viewing them from an eternal perspective. If you do this, I, I have to tell you, that it's not going to take the pain away for one minute. It, it hurts. What it does is gives us hope. And that's the thing that keeps Johnny going. My niece has been on uh, Johnny's get-up team for several years. And uh, she goes in with a group of ladies and helps Johnny get out of bed in the morning. The quadri quadriplegia is just overwhelming and she really can't do anything for herself and so a team of women go in. It's a horrible way to live. How does she get through it? Same way you and I will. 
is knowing that the suffering will not go on for all eternity because Jesus' suffering on the cross ended with his resurrection. And because his suffering ended, you can be assured your pain and suffering will end too. Someday you will be rewarded either in this life or in the next. And it's that eternal perspective where you look beyond the immediate to the good that is coming by faith that helps us get through it. And this is the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. All of his painful suffering, and they just beat the tar out of Paul. He says it's just light momentary affliction It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Whatever it is you're going through right now, I am really sorry. It's really hard. But just know this, because Jesus conquered, you will conquer too. And God is preparing something for you of wholeness and health. Can't even compare. And all we have to do when we look at it is look at the empty cross and look at an empty tomb and remember what Jesus said is true. God allows what he hates to accomplish something far greater than what he loves. So be confident. Be courageous. Jesus' prayer reveals thirdly his worthiness of being exalted. Right after he prays, glorify your son, verse 2, he explains why. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Say amen. You, who are a believer, are God the Father's gift to Jesus. Do you understand that? He said, I want you and my family, I want you and my family, I want you and my family, and I'm going to set you and you and you and you and you and you apart, and I'm going to give you to Jesus as a gift to him. And that's the reason why Jesus said, I'm not going to lose any of them because they're the Father's gift to me. And the reason why they were God's gift is because it was the plan of God in eternity past that those whom God had given to the Son would believe. And that's why verse 3 we read here, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's the only pathway to the only true God. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus of Nazareth. See? And why is he the only way? Because he's the only person who's ever lived a perfectly sinless life. And thus we get verse 4. I glorified you on earth. He always did what the Father wanted him to do. Having accomplished, verse 4, the work that you gave me to do. I left heaven 
to come here to die. And nothing is going to stop me from doing that. And so he goes to Mount Calvary. And because of it, Paul says he's been exalted. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And one day, beloved, every knee is going to acknowledge who he is. Every Buddhist and every Baptist, every atheist and every Anglican, every Muslim and every Mennonite, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's why we're always doing this, huh? That's why we're always doing this. Thus, his final request, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. To be born a baby in Bethlehem, the Son of God had to empty himself of his right to use his divine attributes. He didn't stop being God. He just gave up his right to use some of those attributes while he was a human being here. Well, as he anticipates his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, He prays, Father, reverse that self-emptying. Please, restore my heavenly splendor. Restore my heavenly magnificence that I had with you, Father, back before the world existed. And the more I thought about it, the more I began to realize You know what he's saying? He's saying, Father, I want to come home. I just want to come home and be with the one I love. Some of you know this pain deeply. You've buried a loved one. I just want to go home. And we look at this crazy, weird world that we live in. And we suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And something inside of us says, you know, I'm just ready to go home and be with the ones I loved. Well, beloved, someday it's going to be true. You're not going to be in this suffering forever. And Jesus was confident this was God's good plan for his life. And it's God's good plan for your life as well. The most interesting thing about all of this to me was the fact that Jesus would be different. 
because now in heaven he has a, a human body that he didn't have before. And interestingly, his body still has the wounds. Remember, after he rose from the dead? And what did he say to doubting Thomas? Go, go ahead and put your hand. Go ahead. And why does he have those wounds? So that he'll be honored for all eternity. All of eternity. Because when we get to heaven, what we're going to do, we're going to spend a lot of time singing with the angels. Worthy is the lamb that was, what? Slain. And every time we look at him, we're going to see him. He's deserving. He's worthy to receive power. Rich, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. We just going to... And not only will we praise him for his wounds, but we'll recognize it's because of those wounds that you and I will have our wounds healed. Peter's comment that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were, what's it say? Healed. God's plan for you is wholeness. God's plan for you is wealth. And that's going to come when you see him face to face. Because he's going to be true to his word. I will restore you to health. And I'll heal all of those wounds. So what are you suffering? We all have them all of the emotional scars, all the quirks in my personality. <laughs> Ask my wife, you know. <laughs> all the confusion. One day, one day, the sufferings of this present world they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's going to be better. Now I look out at some of you and I, I know you. And I know the pain that you've endured. And I'm just going to tell you it's not going to last forever. And someday. Someday. And that includes physically. He's going to transform this lowly body to be like his glorious body. I have no idea how he's going to do it. All I know is what he said is, I'm going to make all things new. Close to 60 years, Johnny has used that horrible injury as a pathway for sharing the good news and hope of the gospel with others. 
it has not for one moment, I'll say it again, ended her pain, chronic pain, but it really has helped her hold fast to the grace of God in all of her afflictions and long for the hope of glory. And interesting, Johnny says the first thing that she's going to do when she gets to heaven is dance with Jesus. And boy, I bet you he's going to twirl her around. It's going to be... So, I don't know what you're going to face this week. Probably some unexpected challenge is going to come, whatever happens. If we can trust him through the pain and confusion, hanging on, beloved, sometimes just by the smallest fingernails of our faith, He promises that one day, either in this life or the next, he will exponentially atone for every tear and abundantly reward us for every hurt. So, in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, even with tears in our eyes and confusion in our minds, let's hang on to him and believe and keep following him no matter what. Do you know the Lord Jesus as your savior? If you don't, the invitation is extended to you. Some point in time, you gotta make up your mind whether you believe this or not. That Jesus, the son of God, died on the cross to pay your penalty in full. And at some point in time, you gotta cut anchor with your sins. I, I can show you real quick. God created you, me, us, Dennis, to be in a love relationship with him. That's why you exist. But I, in my foolishness, I, in my craziness, I, in my rebellion, didn't think God's way was very much fun or smart, so I turned away from God. The Bible calls that sin. And God, because he's holy and pure, turned away from me. The Bible says that the Wages of sin is death. Death in the Bible is always separation. That's the bad news. You're, you're better than some, you're worse than others. But we're all in the same boat together. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to God to die on that cross to pay your penalty in full. Prove it true. After he was dead, they buried him. Three days later, he rose from the dead and he's alive today, February 25th, 2024, and he's calling. Come to me, all who are weary. Repent of your sin. Believe in me. Become one of my disciples. Put your trust in me. Invite me into your heart. Call me Lord. They're all synonyms for the same thing. Our sin is killing us and there's nothing we can do about it. So we have to cut anchor with our own good works and our efforts to try and earn our forgiveness and put our faith and trust solely in him. Those who do are given a hope and an assurance. All your sins are forgiven, and one day, I promise you, all of your sorrows will turn.
to joy. Anybody here this morning? Jesus, save me. I'm so sorry. Save me. Forgive me. Come into my heart. Gotta make up your mind at some point in time. Hope you will. All right, let's bow our heads. We'll conclude our time. All right, everybody take a real deep breath together. I've used a lot of words here. Will you trust him? Ask for his help. And anybody, Jesus, save me. Please save me from my sin. Forgive me. I want you as my personal savior. I want to follow you. Come into my heart. Forgive me. Hope you will. Our Father in heaven, um, we will be eternally grateful to you and to your son. So, by your Holy Spirit, please use your word, encourage, confirm, strengthen us for this day. Our trust is in you, so keep working, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.